Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. Well, a new study has found that cleaning up Shadow Creek is not worth it because of the previous pollution. If that's the case, what's next? While it's official, John Baird is not running for the conservative leadership race. What kind of an impact is that going to have? And we get an update from Kathy Puckering about the great things that are happening at John C. Monroe International Airport. The Bill Kelly Podcast starts now. Today on The Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. One of the issues I had hoped to get to uh, with uh, Mayor Eisenberger, well, we've come to know as Sewergate, uh, there was a, a study, or, or, uh, I guess a really a, a kind of an update uh, the city council got yesterday after they'd done some work about uh, those uh, billions of liters of uh, sewage that was uh, dumped into Coots Paradise and uh, caused so much of an alarm, I think justifiably so, some months ago. Uh, and the takeaway that some people are getting from the reporting on this is that, oh, it wasn't as bad as everybody thought. Uh, well, not quite the conclusion you should be drawing on this. Uh, Chris McLaughlin, come on and, and talk about this. Chris, of course, is the Executive Director for the Bay Area Restoration Council. Uh, thanks for coming in today, by the way. Good to see you. Good to see you. You thanks. were at the meeting yesterday. You heard about the staff report. I mean, give me your read on what staff was saying and, and, and your conclusions about what go- went on here. So the consultant's report that was presented to General Issues Committee yesterday was very narrowly focused on the Ministry of Environment's order to the city to deal with the, the the consequences of this incident from 2014 to 2018. And the, and the spill got particularly bad in 2018, but was narrowly focused on the order from the ministry, not underst- well, understandably. And so the response to do, to take no action was in consideration of the spill alone and not the hundred years of history of industrialization in the, in the West End and all the contamination in that river valley um, that would could and ought to be taken into account, and, and the city hasn't ruled out uh, a broader view. The ses- uh, the, some of the comments here, and this is a, one of the things that just kind of blew me away, uh, it seemed to be the conclusion anyway, and I'm paraphrasing this uh, from this big report, is that, look, at it was polluted anyway, so what's the big deal? I, I, that's not really the attitude I'd like to, to see these guys take. Yeah, that's not acceptable any longer. Uh, something's I going hope to not. be <laughs> something's something. I think will be done. Um, Tom Jackson, for example, noted the, that the take no action isn't going to fly in the bigger picture. It might be an acceptable answer to the ministry under the limited or constrained uh, terms of reference around their order and what the consultant on behalf of the city looked at, which again was just simply the consequences of that sewage spill, which in light of the risk of dredging up all of that hundred years of contamination may not be as bad or the consultant actually concluded would not be as as bad or as risky as just leaving it there so if you stand back though and you do look at the broader context of how badly degraded and abused that creek and that river valley in the west end has been over the last hundred years people may not realize that where dundurn uh, the Dundurn Street Fortinos sits today. There yeah. was a steel steel mill there yeah. for decades yeah. that people made appliances at at, uh, at well, right along, across the road here on Longwood Road. That's right for decades until it became the McMaster Innovation Park. So we're used to grocery stores and universities being around here in this area now. But historically, this has been a tremendously degraded area with a and prime, it all got dumped in the creek. And it all got dumped in the creek. There are the soccer fields along the 403 there. At Cade Ridge Park, that's, yeah. a, that's a landfill. People yeah. may not realize that either. Yeah, it used to be a dump. This is a terribly uh, contaminated place. And the, and the fact that we're talking about a spill, uh, uh, you know, a serious but, but one-time occurrence uh, is, is really a blessing in, relative to the history that we're talking about. But that doesn't, that's not, as Tom Jackson said yesterday, that's not going to fly moving forward. We need to figure this out. And I was really pleased to hear uh, Dan McKinnon, who's the, general manager of public yeah. works say that that's exactly our approach to this also that while i'm while the consultant's report is recommending and the city is going to be sending this to the province today this is the deadline for the city to report to the province in response to the director's orders to figure it out um, they're going to be saying that we're taking no action with respect to the spill given all of the other risks involved in doing something uh, in response. But that doesn't mean that we're not going to respond to the actual environmental quality there and do something. And I was really pleased that I think Dan McKinnon and I totally agree on, on this, that rather than 
leaping to, to in, into some action just to be seen to be doing something. What I think all of the parties involved, not just the city and, 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 and us, but the other agencies like the RBG and the Conservation Authority, for example, what would be really great and I think most effective is for everybody to take a deep breath, stand back and think about how we can marshal all of the energy that's been created, all of the desire and the, and the concern and upset and emotion that this has stirred up in the community. How can we take that and marshal it in a way that moves us in some constructive uh, discussion? So, so many of the recommendations that we might make, make today have been made for decades about how to fix upstream concer concerns, contamination out in the watershed that ultimately gets down into the harbor and keeps us from achieving the goals of the Remedial Action Plan. We've said the same things over and over again. This is the time for action. But what action should be taken? Should we, you know, should we go, go off um, just to be seen to be doing something in this particular location? What we really like to see is to stand back and take a really careful look at what priorities are out there to get the biggest bang for our buck, for example, not to ignore the problem, but rather to act very strategically and, and more comprehensively. The will seems to be there. Uh, more so than maybe in the past. I mean, there was a time when we did just kind of throw up our hands and say, yeah, that's polluted. Isn't that too bad? We're an industrial city. That stuff happens. You know, it, let's just move on. And we don't think that way anymore. I mean, we're doing something about Randall Reef, and it's expensive, and it's not the solution a lot of people want, but it's 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 a solution. Uh, where's the strategy to, to deal with what's going on here? Because as you say, the city seems to be of, of the mind that they need to do something about this. The other partners, RBG, are doing their own research. Uh, I've talked to Burlington Mayor Marianne Mead Ward about this, and, and they've already contributed and will continue to. Still upset that the city didn't bring them in on, on what was going on here. But that aside, that doesn't deter their commitment, I guess, to what's going on. So everybody's at the table, Chris. Everybody says, yeah, let's do something. Where's the plan? The plan doesn't exist exactly. Um, what the Remedial Action Plan uh, office was able to do, being constrained to the area of concern, which is the harbor proper, um, their jurisdiction sort of ends at the shoreline. Mm -hmm. But in 2016, a number of work groups to look at the issues of uh, runoff and sediment and erosion and so forth were formed to look at the urban areas of Hamilton, the urban areas of Burlington, what's going on in rural lands, for example, and another one, a fourth uh, working group to look at construction sites because active construction sites are a tremendous source of of contaminants to surface water as, as stuff is churned up and, and shoveled around and then washed into creeks and so forth. Um, those committees were, were very effective in, in, for a couple of reasons. First, they were given uh, a good 18 months in which to bring together people so that issues could get chewed over and, uh, and some consensus recommendations about how to move forward in, in our watershed were developed. The second thing it did that was really beneficial was to uh, was the, 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 the diversity of, of views at the table, just all, having even all of the, the, the departments of the city uh, together at the same table. They don't often get the opportunity to sit and share their own perspectives and, because they have such narrow mandates, but to have all the other players at the table as well was very, very uh, beneficial. Those reports, or the, sorry, those working groups generated recommendations about what to do. One of the consensus recommendations involving not only city departments, but all of the agencies uh, participating in, in these working groups was, for example, to have a stormwater program involving a, including a stormwater rate. That was a consensus view, and that is an issue now before council, mm -hmm. uh, an issue that they're chewing on. And I found that observing that conversation in particular that the nature of the, the conversation has changed from 2011 to 2015 until now it's being considered to Hamilton Council for a third time. Um, it's, a, it's a broader conversation. It's a more nuanced conversation. I saw evidence of that yesterday also in Council in talking about this, this uh, recommendation to take no action on the creek in particular. Council were looking very closely at the details. Uh, they, they, there was the conversation parsed the take no action as a result of the spill itself versus, but we've got all of these other problems we need to deal with. There was an indication, like I said, from Hamilton Water that we want to stand back and take a more comprehensive view of this and take a really strategic and, and informed uh, set of actions 
What those actions are, how we prioritize those has yet to be determined. And I think the real, this is where the real shame of the, of the spill and the, and the council's behavior collectively um, comes in. And, and it, was, it was alluded to by uh, Councillor Jackson also yesterday when he referred to partners like BARC and RBG and others, uh, Environment Hamilton, for example, in, 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 the, in following the release of the reports in November that, that broke loose that the news on, on yeah. Shit Oak that everyone was upset about. That, the, that they were setbacks. And I, I think the setbacks are less environmental than they are social. And that any grace that the community would give this, the corporation of the city of Hamilton right now to take its time and, and go slowly and, and thoughtfully into this process, they burned a lot of that up. Um, they burned a lot of that goodwill. And so now they're really, you know, in a, in a corner. They've, they've, they probably feel like they need to be acting um, to do to be seen to be doing something, they have a consultant well, report they're, they're, now. They're trying to restore the credibility, for sure. And I can I can appreciate that. And I think that I think the pieces in order to do that are there. Um, there's been a tremendous willingness from Public Works at Hamilton to uh, engage, um, at least from my perspective. I shouldn't speak for all of the partner agencies, but from my perspective, um, there's a change in the in in the attitude and the direction at at Hamilton Water or Public Works. Um, to engage and to to try and and build uh, a, a coalition around where we go from here. So to answer your question about where's that where's that work plan? It doesn't exist. <clears throat> but you the are the guys. You are the guys that they need to lean on for this. I, I had the the honor of serving on the conservation authority back when I was on council. I was one of the council reps on there for a number of years, and it was eye opening. I got to tell you uh, to understand exactly where things are coming from. I mean, you know we talk all the time about, you know, Hamilton is the city of waterfalls, you know, more waterfalls than any other city in the world. That's because there's so much water running underneath us. I mean, that's why, the, the, as you say, the problem is not necessarily a coots, it's upstream. Uh, and so this is this is going to have to be a very extensive program, and not just looking at what's going on down there at the bay or in coots. It's, it's what's happening on the escarpment, it's what's happening, it's up there, upstream. Uh, so this is this is going to have to be a, a, a huge undertaking, and and really probably a mindset change about what we need to do here. And uh, it's it's going to take time, but but man, we got to get to first base before we can get home. You hit the nail right on the head, Bill. That the problems that remain in the harbor as a, are as a result of activities of human land use activities and development upstream, so miles away from the harbor are all kinds of, uh, of, of land use changes. We're hardening surfaces that collect up pollutants and then when it rains, all of that water is rushed efficiently ver- in, into sewers and into streams with all of the contaminants, oils and gas, for example, that comes from cars and lots of other stuff um, that's problematic for streams. And all of that is going down into the harbor and we're sitting scratching our heads now that we've spent a fortune at Randall Reef. We spent a fortune at the wastewater treatment plant. And it, it would be understandable if the decision makers that have spent all that money over decades say, well, you know, where, where is the, the, where's the ribbon to cut on getting our harbor off this list of areas of concern, right? Where is the payoff? And now people are saying, well, that was actually just the low-hanging fruit. Those hundreds of millions of yeah. dollars have paid to pick the low-hanging fruit. So now we've really got to do the hard work if we want to see the the further gains in water quality downstream. We'll never restore Hamilton Harbor to where the remedial action plan says we need to be if we don't go upstream and start addressing all of those things. And you know, it it's not a ni- it's not a it's not a happy message, I suppose, for those for many f- folks to hear that we're just starting to really get a comprehensive handle on that. But we've got, I think, the wind at our back at this moment. And we're trying to seize the moment. Some of them, though, I've only got a minute or two left here. Some of the solutions, and there's going to be many solutions, it's multi-pronged. It's not just one thing, hey, we'll do this and we're going to be fine, uh, are not that difficult. I mean, you know, something as simple as disconnecting your, you know, your drain from the, th- the sewer system. Now, well, why should that? You're part of the problem if, if you don't do that. And lots of people I know still don't do that. Uh, that's contributing to that. That doesn't take a whole lot of time or money, uh, but it's part of the solution. There are little things that we can do incrementally along the way. Uh, and I think we need to focus on those. And uh, But at the same time, there's got to be an attempt to address the, the big picture here. And like you say, this is going to have to be a very comprehensive strategy. Well, for example, the money that might be spent, the millions of dollars on dredging um, uh, this section of 
Shadow Creek, for example, might, and I'm not suggesting that we've done the, the, all the work necessary to say that one is more important than the other, but that money might be spent on a city program, for example, to help pe- people figure out if they're going to disconnect their downspout, where is that, uh, where's the water from their roof going? We don't want it to go in their basement, that's for sure. Sure. So where is it going to go? So, you know, we're, we're sort of playing, we don't know how much is in the envelope to spend, and we don't know where to spend it just yet. But I think the city is sending the right signals as long as they keep engaging with partners, because we all share the same goals. We're all member partners uh, of the Remedial Action Plan. We all want to see the same thing. And the role that BARC plays in having a mandate that spans the entire watershed across both cities, across both con- conservation authorities and the RBG lands and so forth, is to try and at least sit at the head of the table and say, can we all get together on this and figure out, we've got a minister of the environment in Ottawa right now with and a minister of infrastructure with some very favorable language in their mandate letters saying, giving them direction to pursue many of the things that would fix the watershed in Hamilton Harbor. So how can we all get together and with a consensus set of priorities, for example, I think would be a very smart thing to do and start going after some real money and fixing some problems that m- would make real impacts on improving water quality. Well, I mean, we've got a cabinet minister who represents that area, as a matter of fact, the west end of the city, uh, Philomena Tassi. Uh, Catherine McKinnon, of course, uh, is, a, is an Ottawa MP, but she's from Hamilton. And she and knows folks they live are, over by the yeah, golf course. just around the corner here, sure. So, 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 so they know what's going on. They understand the concerns. And when she was the environment minister, we talked extensively about that. So you'd like to think that they could have a voice at the cabinet table to try to get some of these things done. Uh, Dan McKinnon, the, the manager in charge for the city here, obviously is, wants to see this happen. So like I say, the will is here. I think we, we have to get down to and, and get everybody at the table right now and start talking about this because uh, uh, we can't afford not to. I mean, I, I, there's always going to be a cost to this. I get that. But the cost of not doing it, I think, is greater. Absolutely. Cost is greater. We don't know what that is yet, but the, the cost of doing nothing uh, is is unacceptable. Um, what we do have was is is an, a more engaged conversation. We saw that at GIC yesterday in council chambers, and the, the, the will of BARC at this point is to also extend that across the community. We've seen this already in, in people coming to the realization of what's going on in the environment and how the sewer system's connected to the natural environment and the ecosystems. So we need to, to heighten that to further build that coalition of, of people that get behind some of the hard decisions to come. Chris, let's stay on top of this. Uh, thanks so much for coming in today, and uh, thanks for your dedication. You and the staff, of course, at Bark and some of these other agencies, too. And uh, let's, uh, as, as council seems to be of a like mind now that we have to get going on this. So let's see some action on this. So uh, we'll stay in touch. Yeah, my pleasure. Thanks very much. Chris McLaughlin, Executive Director of the Bay Area Restoration Council. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Well, John Baird made an official uh, late yesterday. He is out, uh, despite uh, the uh, plea. Meetings, I guess, of a number of senior officials in the Conservative Party, uh, that he should throw his hat into the ring to be the next leader of that party. Uh, he has said, nope, not going to do that. So why does that leave the party? I mean, they're, they're, Andrew Shear stepping down. There are some people that have st- expressed interest in this. Joining us to talk about this is uh, Daniel Bayland, who is the professor, uh, director of the McGill Institute for Study of Canada. Uh, professor, thank you so much for the time. Great to have you with us today. Uh, thanks for the invitation. Let me ask you, the, the, the storyline here with this leadership, ever since Andrew Shearer announced that he was going to be stepping down, uh, seems to be who doesn't want, want the job as opposed to who's act- actively trying to get this. I mean, a lot of big names have, have said thanks, but no thanks. Exactly. So we think of not just John Baird, but of course, Rona Ambrose, Jean Charest, and to a lesser extent, because he's not that a big name, but still significant player, Pierre uh, Poilievre. So... And these are just a few of the names that had been floated around and mentioned in the media and people who in the end decided not to run. So I think there are um, a main factor here, I think, is that it's this set rules that are extremely uh, a threshold that's hard to meet. Uh, It's a relatively short race and you have an entrance fee, you know, $200,000 and and you, um, you, you also need to get a lot of signatures in order to, uh, to enter the race. So I think this is a, this is a challenge. Uh, also, Peter McKay now is seemed to uh, uh, be ahead, and uh, some people are even talking about the possibility of uh, him being crowned <laughs> to the, mm-hmm. um, the leadership position. Uh, but that's probably not the best scenario for the conservatives. That's why some people like Jason Kenney wanted John Baird to step in 
at this point because uh, otherwise some conservatives think that the race uh, is really boring and it's a, a term that's been used uh, quite a bit online uh, on social media so um, it's not necessarily good for conservatives if people think that it's just boring there's nothing to watch it would be just you know the crowning of, of Peter McKay and there's also another issue which is in terms of the diversity of views and backgrounds you know it's you don't have any uh, candidate from western canada right now so the fact that rona ambrose or james moore another name that mm -hmm. was mentioned uh, uh, earlier this winter are not running uh, creates a void as well uh, a regional void if you want uh, considering that the conservative party is so strong out west and you don't have uh, a major candidate from western canada in the race so that's uh, that's another issue moving forward well, and that's an interesting twist on this, isn't it, Daniel? Because let's face it, I think a lot of people, even within the party, uh, were concerned about the fact that uh, over the last uh, 12, 15 years, uh, the party has been basically Western-centric, probably more specifically Alberta-centric, uh, and to not have any representation there, there's a concern here that they're alienating what has been the base for that party for the last little while. Yes, maybe that some people will make the calculus that, you know, they are so strong out west that what they need to do is... Uh, to reach out to people in Atlantic Canada and in uh, in Quebec and of course uh, in Ontario which is where the next election will be decided like the previous election and the one before and the one before it so <laughs> i think that um it 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 might not be a bad thing for the conservatives as long as they don't alienate this this western base um and and i would say that right now you have of course two main candidates so Peter McKay was ahead, and the main challenger is uh, Aaron O'Toole. And when you listen to what Aaron O'Toole is saying, you follow him on Twitter like I do, you see that I think he tries to reach out to more conservative conservatives, that is, people who are uh, traditionally associated with the Western or Canadian Alliance reform uh, wing of the, of the party. So moving to the right of... Um, uh, of um, uh, uh, Peter McKay, and 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 that might be a way for him to actually uh, gain more support, and that might also force uh, McKay to really uh, um, adjust, adapt. Uh, but but right now, I you know, <laughs> I would say that uh, um, that Erin O'Toole is uh, the dark horse in this race, and that uh, Peter McKay is is well ahead. So uh, uh, it might change, but uh, right now it, it it looks a bit boring, and and that's not necessarily a good thing for conservatives. Daniel, are they going through an identity crisis? I mean, the, the party itself, the Conservative Party, uh, as you mentioned, I mean, they've been Alberta-centric. There's a, a, a very strong feeling that uh, the, the extreme right wing had a, an awful lot of influence over that, maybe even over Andrew Scheer as well. And there was some talk after the last election that they thought they were going to win, and we all know the, what the result ended up being that maybe they had to move a little bit more to the center, not to the center, but a little more moderate in, on some of these issues right now. I don't know that they've actually decided exactly where they want to be and who they want to be. Yes, you're absolutely right. I think that uh, considering that Peter McKay is, is, is considered to be the leader in this race, that he has to set the tone and, and provide some content. So far, we haven't heard much in terms of actual policy content uh, from him. It's early in the race. Um, he's probably also trying to get, um, you know, a, a, just to wait and see who will actually enter the race because some other players might still enter at this point, but it's getting quite late <laughs> because, you know, we'll, uh, it's a short race, as I said earlier. Um, but uh, if he wants to take the leadership uh, of this party, to become leader of this party, he needs to, uh, I think, uh, frame the right vision for the party, which will be closer to the center than what we had under Andrew Scheer, but also under Stephen Harper. And that could create tensions within the party, especially tensions between the old progressive conservative wing, and Peter McKay is associated with it, uh, of course, and the, um, the reform slash Canadian alliance wing, which is more of a Western wing of, um, of the conservative party. So there will be certainly tensions ahead, but right now there are so few meaningful candidates we talk about you know two perhaps three if you include marilyn gladue but she's not a very very she's not very well known uh so so you know there is not that much in terms of having 
uh, a significant number of people who will bring new ideas to the table and, and, and test these ideas with, with members and, and with the general public and, and with, with uh, voters. And, and right now the field is, is a bit too narrow to have a real debate about core policy ideas, um, and, and that's certainly uh, a challenge. Because uh, the discussion continues. I mean, uh, and uh, I know that Jason Kenney's name was thrown around when she retired. He doesn't want to step aside. He's just got elected in Alberta. Uh, they mentioned Doug Ford, but his his star has certainly fallen from where it was the day he got elected as well. Uh, they're talking about former Saskatchewan Premier Brad Wall, but I think you're right, Daniel. It's, it's a little late in the game for anybody to jump in now. Yes, and there is another issue that was discussed a few weeks ago. Uh, is the bilingualism or language mm-hmm. skills of uh, the um, the main candidates? So we know Peter McKay and uh, Erin O'Toole are not so great in in terms of their French, <laughs> and uh, we saw that early on in uh, in the race, uh, and that's been an issue as well. Of course, someone like Bradwell will not solve this issue. I mean, he speaks a little bit of French, I think, but not much, and and that would be the same thing I, I suspect for uh, Doug Ford, who yeah will not be. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. in a very good position. Jason Kenny is bilingual. Mm-hmm. Uh, in a different context, I think he will be a strong contender, but um, yeah, he's the premier of Alberta, and that, that, that's where he will stay for the time being. Uh, maybe next time around, you never know, but you know, in Canada, it's very hard for a premier to become a prime minister. It hasn't happened since the late 19th century, in part because when you become premier, you defend the interest of your province, and you become so associated with your province and your region of the country that after that, after you've been premier, it's much harder to uh, reach, out, reach out to the rest of the country. And even Jean Charest, in a way, uh, faced that, uh, that issue when he was thinking about running because he's so, you know, people associate him with Quebec uh, because he was, uh, of course, premier of Quebec and he was also a liberal premier. So that didn't help him. Uh, but the fact that he was a premier, uh, uh, I think, was a, was a challenge because you're too tied to your province of origin in a way, which might become an issue uh, in the federal arena. But those those party lines are pretty blurred, aren't they, in Quebec? I mean, a liberal is not a, a liberal as an Ontario liberal would be in Quebec. It's not unlike British Columbia. You know, when Christy Clark was with the liberal premier there, that, that party is far more to the left of, or right of center than, than you might think in situations like that. But uh, I understand, though, you get stuck with a label, and that's, that's yes. what you have to live with, right? I agree with you that the liberal party uh, of Quebec and the federal liberal party have never really be on the same page on, on the quite a few issues. You remember how, you know, pierre Elliott Trudeau uh, and uh, Robert Bourassa didn't see eye to eye, and, and they were actually fighting quite a bit. And, uh, and so, and, and to this day, it's true that it, it, it's really not, you know, uh, uh, the same, um, the same uh, uh, parties in terms of ideology. But for people, especially out west, or people who don't necessarily know these more subtle distinctions, you know, Charest was still for uh, many years the liberal uh, premier of Quebec, not of British Columbia, of Quebec. And for some people, uh, uh, say in Alberta, that, you know, uh, uh, people who already think that Quebec has too much power, that might be an issue. So it's also that, you know, Charest was not just a, a, a liberal premier, but liberal premier of Quebec. Absolutely. Let's go back to the election, and I know that's one of the things that, that the party's going to have to come to grips with. As we mentioned earlier, that this last federal election last October was one that they pretty much thought they were going to win. The polls seemed to indicate that. It fell apart, and we all know the result is... But one of the things that, that they're going to have to come to grips with here, and you touched on this a second ago, Daniel, if you don't win Ontario and Quebec, you don't win. Uh, and I know that that may be, you know, something that the Western provinces don't want to admit to. They still want to think that they have an important role to play, and they do. But, you know, the, the Conservative Party as it stands right now doesn't seem to be able to resonate with urban voters. And 85% of the people that vote in this country live in cities. That, that's a big issue. They are very strong in rural areas and... Uh uh, in, 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 you know, they are strong in Calgary and, uh, and relatively in Edmonton. But yeah, if you take Winnipeg, Vancouver, and especially, uh, Montreal and, and, and Toronto, they are not strong. I'm talking about downtown Toronto. Of course, when you go to suburban areas, that's where they need to gain more seats. But I think what's happening now that suburban voters are more, um, interested and passionate about environmental issues. So I think the conservatives have some, uh, some work to do there, and I think that's widely acknowledged. But that also could create tensions within the party. Again, 
when we talk about the Western wing of the party or people in, in Alberta or Saskatchewan who, who uh, are strongly opposed to, say, carbon pricing and so forth. Um, and there is also a challenge regarding cultural issues or uh, moral issues like abortion, LGBT uh, rights, and so forth. And I think that Peter McKay has been sending signals, uh, certainly on the, um, regarding these moral and cultural issues, that he will be quite moderate um, and, and uh, is you know, willing to attend gay pride parade and so forth. Um, but I think, to me, this is easier to do than changing the course on the environment because it has enormous uh, uh, economic and, and policy implications. And, and that's the biggest challenge, I think, for the conservative parties, convince uh, suburban voters and urban voters that they care about the environment. And and you're right, that's going to be maybe their biggest challenge, because the, as soon as they start to talk about environmental issues or carbon tax or, you know, the challenges, the court challenge, uh, Jason Kenney and, 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 and Premier Mo in, in Saskatchewan are going to get their backs up, because they take that as a personal affront to, to their economies if they're doing this. And that's that's something the party's really going to have to reconcile, isn't it? Absolutely. And that's, that's why it's... Uh, it's a balancing act, and uh, we, we know how, how difficult it is even for the Liberals. You, you know, when the, the Liberals decided, I mean, the Liberal government decided to buy the Trans Mountain Pipeline, they lost uh, some support among uh, uh, people on the left, right? Uh, the left of their own party. Um, and so uh, the Liberals face the same basic challenge, but it's even more dramatic for the Conservatives because last time around, it's, it, certainly their, their defeat is related at least in part to uh, their position on the environment um, and their lack of environmental, of green credentials, which is especially problematic among younger voters. And, um, and that's something that they, uh, they need to, uh, to tackle, and it's urgent. And, and we'll see if Peter McKay um, is able to do that as the front runner to set the tone. Uh, and, and, and we'll see whether, if he does, whether this will create a, a backlash uh, in uh, uh, Alberta and Saskatchewan. If you look at the two front runners, as you mentioned, uh, Aaron O'Toole and Peter McKay, how are they supposed to take the fact that it looked like a number of senior members of the party uh, were actively pursuing John Baird? It wasn't just, hey, this will be a nice competition. It, 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 it's yeah. almost as if they're sending a message, Daniel, that, you know what, we're not pleased with either one of you guys, and we're trying to find yeah. somebody else. Uh, uh, yes, I think that there is this... Um there are a number of conservatives, even people I know, who think that that it's it's uh, it's underwhelming as a field, right? So uh, there's not much excitement there. Uh, Peter McKay is someone who's been around for a long time, so it's hardly a fresh new face. And Erin O'Toole is um, is not uh, as well known or as experienced as uh, the other people uh, we 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 talk about earlier today, like John Baird or or Rona Ambrose, uh, or, or Jean Charest. <clears throat> and there is also this issue of language, bilingualism on the top of it. Um, so, so I think that it's, it's the lack of excitement in this race is an issue for the party because uh, they, you know, they want people to, to, to really think about the conservatives and, 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 to, and you know, to hear about them in the media, to have positive coverage, or at least to, to see this party as a place where big ideas are, are being debated. But if people pay no attention, the media don't pay much attention to a race that's boring and predictable, then that's not good for the party. And it's one thing to talk about policy, and they certainly will do that. But what about star power? I mean, in this yes. day of uh, in elections, not just in Canada, but I think probably right around the world, uh, I mean, if you, if you look at a guy like uh, Zelensky in, in Ukraine that got elected, a former TV yeah. guy, the guy in the White House, uh, Justin Trudeau, there's a personality mm -hmm. there that attracts yeah. an awful lot of people. Is that what the conservatives are looking for, somebody that, that, that can check that box too? Yes, and, and I, I have to say right now they don't have that. And so that, that's, that's certainly an issue. Um, you know, I'm not saying that Peter McKay has no charisma or same thing for Erin O'Toole, but certainly on the charisma scale, <laughs> they could be higher. And so, <laughs> You're very and, kind. And, you know, you even, and, and on the right, you have someone like Trump in the U.S. Of course, many Canadians don't like him, and there are people who, but, you know, Trump uh, uh, has his own, uh, has a strong base, and people who believe in him, and so forth. So you have examples on both the left and the right of really charismatic leaders, um, and it's true that uh, right now they don't have um, a candidate who, who resonates that much 
uh, in terms of, of charisma. Uh, but I don't know where they will turn to find one at this stage. It's, it's a bit late in the game already. Uh, and it's also difficult because, let's say you're, you're an outsider, you're not from the Conservative Party, you can get the $200,000, but getting the signatures really fast is not that easy. So they set up rules that make it harder for an outsider to run. And I think it's something that Jean Charest realized, because Jean Charest, to a certain extent, is an outsider of the uh, Conservative Party of Canada, because he was with the Progressive Conservative Party, he was the leader a long time ago in the 1990s. But, you know, as an outsider... Uh, he would have struggled to, to meet all the requirements. And I think that that's a challenge uh, uh, for potential uh, charismatic uh, hopefuls uh, 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 who, who see that the rules are, are really stacked against them. Yeah, those days when uh, Jean Charest was the leader of the federal party, they, they could hold their caucus meetings in a phone booth. There weren't very many members after that last election. It was so tiny. Those, yes, those were the, the bad old days. Daniel, always great to have you on the program. Thanks so much for your perspective on this. Thanks, and have a wonderful day. You too. Daniel Balon, of course, from McGill University. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Some great news from uh, John C. Monroe Hamilton International Airport. It's been a while since we've checked in with uh, one of the great economic drivers in this community, but uh, they are doing exactly that, uh, driving the economy. The numbers are astonishing in the uh, the report that was released just a little while ago. Uh, joining us to talk about this is Kathy Puckering, President and CEO of uh, John C. Monroe Hamilton International Airport. Good to see you again, Kathy. Thanks for coming in today. It's a, it's a good news story. I know we've had some challenges in the past about this, but uh, we're almost neighbors now because we're our place in Ancaster. I, I see just about everything that comes and goes from your airport a lot of the time. Uh, and it's busy. I mean, we, I mean, you know, I know you brag about the fact that you're open 24-7, but you're busy 24-7. There's always something going on there. Yes, um, over the past couple of years with the introduction of the low-cost service and then as our cargo partners continue to grow, we are definitely... 24 7 uh, 365 days a year and it, it's it's great to see there was a story a few years ago and i remember talking with uh, ron foxcroft the chairman of, of your board uh, about this and you know when the passenger numbers were down and say yeah but the you know the the the, the cargo stuff is still best it's still one of the, the the busiest airports in canada if not in north america when it comes to cargo uh, and that's a story into itself. I'll get to the passenger stuff in a second. But because of all the activity you've got, I mean, you're expanding out there right now. Even the, the partners that you have there are looking for bigger facilities, DHL, and, and there's a lot of construction going on up there. Oh, oh, most definitely. So what we found over the past few years, or our partners have, is, you know, online shopping, e-commerce, uh, the movement of goods is actually significant. And uh, being able to operate in Hamilton is very easy, you know, for all of our cargo partners, easy access onto the highways. And we're in, you know, Canada's largest uh, catchment area mm-hmm. and, and market. There's 9 million people uh, within, you know, a two-hour drive. And, you know, we've always positioned that, that those were passengers that, you know, should be flying out of Hamilton, but it's also people that are buying goods online, and um, the demand is just going up. Um, in 2019, earlier in the year, KFA Aerospace, so they're a maintenance and yeah. repair um, overhaul organization, um, their business is booming, and they're maintaining, you know, the aircraft for, you know, passenger and cargo. Um, so they saw a need to expand their operations to satisfy that growth. So uh, they they opened their facility in November, um, and now they're building uh, their second hangar. They started uh, immediately after that, and it'll be done later this year, and it actually is going to house uh, Mohawk College um, students through the Aviation Technician Management Program. That's a great uh, partnership, isn't it? Oh, it, it, it's tremendous, and, you know, what a big win for, for Hamilton. You know, Hamilton has transformed over the past 20 years, and, the academic um, opportunities that we have and and at the airport, these students that are graduating are, you know, I think the number is something like 95% are basically hired before they've even got that diploma. And some of them now are, are moving from Mohawk College into McMaster and then getting an engineering degree as well. So um, our community is very fortunate, you know, it, it's creating jobs. And, uh, of course, the, the success later in last year was DHL. Yeah. Um, so looking to basically quadruple the footprint that they have today, um, they've been operating in, a, in an aircraft hangar, you know, modified their, 
um, sophisticated sword equipment to fit in there, and it doesn't work for them anymore. It's too small. It's too small, and they're looking at what the growth uh, let's, opportunities are. Uh, let's just let's are. not lose that. Plan. An airplane hangar is too small, so they've got four times as big now. Yeah, yeah they're building up to, I think, 200,000 square feet. Um, it will accommodate their growth over the next three to five years. Um, but what it means for Hamilton and our region is, and for DHL is it will be DHL's largest facility uh, in Canada, and it's in Hamilton. Talk to me about employment. How many people actually work up there now, ballpark? So our study is actually now a little bit outdated. We used to uh-huh. do them every five years. So two years ago, we updated it, um, and it showed 3,500 employees. Uh, that was up from about 27, 28, five years earlier. Um, of that, 2,800 of those are actually dedicated direct employees at the airport um, with all of our tenants and our partners and, and the support services. So knowing what's happened with the growth in our passenger activity over the past uh, you know, three years, 187% growth, 30 per two, or 32% just last year alone, and our cargo partners, you know, they're all at capacity and they, they tell us regularly how large has that 3,500, you know, um, full-time jobs, uh, th- what is the change that's happened over the past 24 mm-hmm. months? So we're probably going to retest that and check it out uh, later this year, early next. Um, and these, these are good paying jobs too. Yes, yeah, so most definitely. So there is a combination, yeah, um, sure. but in the aviation industry and especially in the MRO, um, they're, they're highly educated in technical jobs. You've got engineers in there that are, you know, maintaining aircraft, whether or not it's a three-week sea check um, or just a small, a, a small maintenance requirement. Um, they need to be highly skilled and trained people that are on, on the ground. All right, let's talk about passengers, if we could, for just a second, because that was always a sore point for some people. Uh, there was a dip, and it's, it's kind of ebbed and flowed over the last little while, but there, in the last few years, there has been an upward curve uh, that, that's still going upward, as a matter of fact. The last numbers I saw were just, uh, just I guess, a little over 950,000 passengers a, a year. Correct. That was uh, 2019's results, 955,000, and... Um, we're aiming to grow beyond that uh, in 2020. Well, it's, it's crazy. I mean, if, if you fly out of there, you've seen this, or even if you've gone to pick somebody up in the last little while, the, the huge, huge parking lot, it's, it's always full, and a day or night, no matter what time you go there. I mean, because there's always activity, always always people coming and going like this, the number of flights that are going back and forth. And, and talk to us a little bit about why this number has gone up. The passengers, uh, like I say, you're, you're, you're skirting on a million, and you'll, you'll get over that, I'm sure, probably sometime this year, uh, the way things are going, because you've got more people flying in and out of here. Uh, it's, it's really kind of the realization of what you guys had planned for all along, isn't it? That getting a multitude of different carriers that are going to different places and, and giving travelers basically an option as opposed to going to Pearson. Oh, exactly. And what, um, you know, what we're very proud of right now is that ultra low cost service has mm-hmm. actually made its way to Canada. And what's happening right now is the new carriers that are providing this lower fare option or more cost effective and efficient for the traveler, it's actually stimulating the market and it's creating new demand. So you're no longer taking travelers that may be using another airport and just redirecting them to Hamilton. You're creating an opportunity for people to fly, you know, more often, those that haven't ever flown before. Um, And larger, we're seeing larger groups of, of family members are actually traveling together. Um, so as, you know, we build that momentum and, you know, the people in our catchment area, again, those 9 million people, they're expecting to travel by air now. You know, people yeah. want to get away. They want to, they want to experience life and it, it's, they want to go south. They want the warmth. They want to see Canada. So having those lower fares in our market, you know, it's giving people the choice. Um, what we're really hopeful for too is right now in Canada, there's about 5 million people that travel across the border to use low cost, you know, carriers that have been there for quite some time. So let's give them the option to look at another air- airport to choose from. And, um, you know, and as we continue to grow and we add more routes and more frequencies and more destinations, you just provide more choices to people. Well, and the, you know, the choices before were, were pretty limited. I mean, if, you know, there was Pearson, there was Buffalo, some people I know tried to do that, but you're, you're talking an hour and a half drive to get there. And, and, you know, it's, 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 there's an inconvenience and a border crossing. Uh, it's always just that much more convenient to be able to hop on, to, you know, the Highway Six or whichever one you want to take and get to the airport. You bingo bang, you're done. Um, you know, you land here, 
And you're home 20 minutes, half an hour later. I mean, as opposed to going and fighting through traffic, it's, it is more convenient. But the number of flights that you've got coming in and out of there make it that much more attractive, I think, for, for, for passengers. And not just for sun destinations, but a lot of other people, too. Oh, most definitely. So currently right now we've got four airlines. So we've got, you know, year-round service with WestJet and, mm-hmm. and with Swoop. And uh, this year, for the first time, uh, both Sunwing and Air Transat returned for their winter programs and expanded the destinations to which they're traveling to. And again, it's just satisfying that market. Um, our other success in 2019, obviously, was Norwegian. Yeah. And, you know, unfortunately, because of the situation with the, the, the 737 MAX aircraft, and um, it, it's, it's not returning in 2020. But it, once again, that market was proven. And people want low fares. They want to be able to travel and, and enjoy those opportunities, you know, somewhere else. What we're also seeing, too, on some of our inbound flights is, you know, Hamilton and the Toronto and the Niagara area, the catchment area for which we're in, it's attracting inbound tourists. So we are most definitely, you know, an airport that's, you know, simple, it's easy to use. We make it, you know, as hassle-free as we possibly can, but we're also serving a market for which people actually want to come to as well. And providing that service for people to travel, leisure, um, visiting family and friends and that type of thing, that's what Hamilton International is. Well, and there's a there's a, a fabulous growth spurt that's happening here in the city right now. We've talked about that from an economic standpoint. Uh, and and you're part of it. I mean, you're right in the middle of this thing. I and mean, we've always talked about this as, as, a, as a driver for the economy. Uh, and it seems to be coming to fruition right now simply because people are looking what's going on. They want to stay here and work here. And when they set up their offices here, uh, they, there's business travel that's involved in this. That, and uh, we haven't even talked about the the other expansion that's going on, too, about the uh, the employment lanes around the mm-hmm. airport, not directly involving you, but it, they're there because you're there. That's really what, what drives that. And that's starting to develop, develop now. You can see that happening. Yes, and that that started about uh, two years ago yeah. when, you know, and you're, you're looking at, you know, where is the population growth going to happen? And there's definitely a migration into Hamilton, you know, from the Toronto and the Mississauga area. And, and people are being attracted to live and, and to enjoy life in Hamilton. And it's, it's getting expensive, you know, elsewhere. So looking at Hamilton, it's an opportunity, you know, for developers to be buying up parcels of land. Um, there's currently active sites just adjacent to the airport. And one of the questions, you know, that they ask is, you know, how do you actually access the airport? Um, And one of the things that we're working on right now with the city of Hamilton is, you know, how do we actually develop some of those lands and what is the best and the preferred use for them? So the city has their plan for the airport employment growth district lands, and we'll continue to work with them to ensure that, you know, we, you know, maximize the opportunities there and and continue, you know, to provide options to not only our cargo and our passenger, but to create employment opportunities, to create jobs and and to just continue to be that economic driver for which the airport is. Is there ever a downtime? I mean, it's always, as I say, <laughs> I can hear the planes taking off and landing uh, constantly. Uh, and I know that it goes on all night. I mean, this is this is one of those oddities, too. I mean, I, I, is it, it's, it, it's as busy, if not more busy, at nighttime than it is in the daytime when it comes to staffing, because that's where a lot of the, the cargo traffic comes and goes, doesn't it? Yeah, so basically right now our mix is pretty much 50-50 okay. with the passenger and the cargo. Um they complement each other well. The cargo loves to travel at night. You know, the goods are moving on the ground by truck during the day. They show up, you know, after dinner, and then they're loading the planes, and, and they travel across the country. Uh, we are Can- uh, Canada's largest overnight express um, cargo airport, and it just provides a really great opportunity for them to connect, you know, the East Coast and the West Coast and do it through Hamilton. Uh, and then you see, you know, the passenger airlines add their service on top of that. And we talk about them primarily flying through the day. Uh, but their first flight goes out now about quarter to six or six o'clock in the morning. And people are showing up for those flights at 3 a.m. And when you've got a midnight arrival coming in as well, you know, those people could be lingering until one o'clock in the morning. Mm-hmm. So where's your, where's that time when you actually say you have downtime? You might have a, a small window, an hour or two, you know, early morning, and there's two small banks um, late morning and mid-afternoon. And for the most part, you know, the terminal building now is full of people, and the airfield is pretty much constantly full of aircraft. Well, and I can see that, as I mentioned before. I mean, at 4 o'clock in the morning when I'm coming down the 403, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm part of a convoy of, of, of trucks, uh, and I know they're coming from the airport. I mean, the, these are all the, the courier trucks, the DHL. I mean, you go down the list of all these trucks. They, they obviously, the, the planes come in, they load the trucks up, and these guys are off to who knows where. But it's all about getting goods to market in a timely fashion, isn't it? Oh, exactly. And uh, 
our largest cargo partner today, uh, CargoJet, yep. have actually done an amazing job at growing their business in Hamilton, expanding their network, you know, throughout Canada as well as abroad. And it was interesting last year, the federal government actually awarded us, you know, $18.5 million to um, expedite our airfield rehabilitation and modernization projects so that we could just take advantage of the good movement opportunities and growth that are happening today. You know, so seize those opportunities today. So we're, you know, rehabilitating the runway, strengthening it. And it, their focus is we are in Canada's strongest and largest trade corridor. And how do we continue to ensure that we invest, you know, as an airport providing um, air transportation, ground linkages to allow those trucks to connect, and an airport facility that allows our airport, um, our airlines to actually expand their business because those opportunities are real. Um, they're happening today. The demand is huge. And CargoJet has done an amazing job at consolidating um, the the movement of those goods through the Hamilton Airport. Are you are you where you want to be right now? I mean, obviously, the, this is a great news story. I mean, the numbers are up in in, in both capacities, both with cargo and with passengers. Uh, you're doing the the the, the updates on on as you say the on the the land itself and and the facilities there. Uh, but there's always going to be time for more, and there's always going to be room for more. I mean, you know, I, I love what's happened with the airport so far, and the terminal looks sensational right now, but there's always room for expansion there, too, as, as these numbers continue to grow. Well, there's there's definitely, I mean, you're never going to slow down trying to grow your business. So there there are still, you know, some market and some opportunities that we continue to pursue um, and always will. Um, as an airport, you know, airports are asset intensive and we're always looking at, you know, near term, mid term and long term planning. And what does that look like for your facilities? So right now, as we're nearing, you know, that million passenger number um, for our passengers, they are happening primarily in a very concentrated peak right now in the morning. So there is still excess capacity. So how can you maybe work with your airline partners and spread some of those services out a little bit better through the day? Or new partners. Or, and your new partners. How do you fill in those small holes through the day and actually keep it, you know, keep that hustle happening um, every hour of the day? But at the same time, that might not be the reality. And um, for, for WestJet we are, and Swoop, you know, we are Swoop's um, training hub, mm -hmm. and pretty much their network starts and ends in Hamilton, and that does happen as early as they can in the morning. Um, so there are some, a few constraints on, on the terminal building at certain, certain points of the day. Uh, we are watching that, we're monitoring that, and we've got some solutions underway for 2020. And as we have a bit more of a longer planning on what does the next phase of that terminal look like. Well, it's a great news story, and uh, that's why I wanted you to come in and talk about this, because we've talked about the airport being one of the economic drivers. Uh, and uh, as you grow, certainly the city grows, and we all benefit from this as well. Uh, keep doing what you're doing. <laughs> it's working. Oh, we will. And you know what? This is a great time for Hamilton. It's a great time for the Hamilton Airport. And we will do everything to ensure that we support our, our all of our carrier partners and that we continue to provide economic activity for the city. Kathy Puckering, the uh, president and CEO of uh, John C. Monroe International Airport. Thanks for coming in. Have a good weekend. Thank you for having me. Thank you, too. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free, so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.